Let me invite you to take your Bibles again and join me in the book of Isaiah, today, chapter 39. 39. Appreciate so much Dr. Ivan Park, who preached in my absence last week. Dr. Hart, Dr. Park preached Isaiah 38, the, the, if you will, the star of Isaiah 38 is the star of Isaiah 39, the King Hezekiah. Uh, the, I use the word star uh, guardedly because there's really only one star in the Bible, and that's the Lord God. Uh, but the feature of this particular narrative is the life and circumstance of Hezekiah. You'll recall that Hezekiah is uh, in the long line of kings in the south, or the country of Judah. Hezekiah is one of the good ones. In fact, eh, remarkably good compared to, say, for instance, his own son. His own son, who uh, Dr. Park reminded you last week, is going to be born in the 15-year period that God gave Hezekiah as an added bonus God extended Hezekiah's life 15 years, and in that 15 years, he gave birth to Manasseh, or his wife did, gave birth to Manasseh. Manasseh became the king following his father, and he reigned for 55 years, and he was the worst king in the history of Judah. So you go from one of the good ones to one of the worst, if not the worst, and there's a lot of uh, touch points there we could explore, as, as in the case of how could a good man have such a bad son? Maybe this good man was not a good father, all kinds of conjecture about that. But good fathers still have rebellious children. So that's not an automatic to make that judgment. So don't make that judgment. Uh, in this case, uh, we do know that... Uh, Manasseh is an evil man and restores all of the pagan idols and pagan uh, shrines and places of worship that his father had seen fit to tear down. And yet, in spite of the, the goodness that we find in Hezekiah, we find that Hezekiah is likewise a flawed man. And we're going to see now in chapter 39 another one of his examples of failure. Now, that's important. Here's what I want you to see as we read Hezekiah's story. There is this uh, mistaken notion that the good people of the Bible are not sinners. Now, that, that needs to be blown up in your own mind. The notion that Abraham was not a sinner, even though he's a patriarch and the, the man to whom God promised that he would make him a great nation— the notion that he is not a sinner is completely unbiblical. David, need, need I go into David's story to prove that David is not uh, a perfect man by any measure? It could go on and on and on. Even Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet of God, and yet he too is a sinner. So we need to we need to get this calibrated in our minds accurately that God uses sinners, that God works through the circumstances of sinful life, and he brings about his glory. God's plan is bigger than your ability 
to ruin it. Don't ever forget that. Ultimately, God's grace is what we all need. And it doesn't matter if your name is Abraham or David or Isaiah or Greg. We need grace. And apart from grace, we are toast. Our only hope is in God. And our only help comes from God. And we see that again in the life of Hezekiah. This is a good man who blows it. And so if there are any good men and women in this audience this morning, take heart because God is greater than your failures. God is greater than your mistakes and God is greater than even your rebellion against him. Your disobedience does not disqualify you from being a recipient of the future grace of God. Thanks be to God for his Promises. So we shall see this in the story of Isaiah, or rather of Hezekiah, as recounted in Isaiah 39. We're also going to consider uh, 2 Chronicles 32. Before I read those two passages together, let me remind you of something. If, uh, if you're not a big student of the Old Testament, and most people are not, you don't know that 2 Kings is a lot like 2 Chronicles. And 1 Kings is a lot like 1 Chronicles. And you'll read 2 Kings, let's just say randomly today, the 20th chapter, and you'll notice that the history of the king in 2 Kings, after all, you know, kings is about kings, right? If you want to know about the kings of Israel and Judah, 1 and 2 Kings, that's where you read about them. So the feature in 2 Kings 20, which we're not going to read today, is Hezekiah. It's the story of Hezekiah. Dr. Park referenced it last week. If you were here, you'll remember he referenced 2 Kings 20. But I'm going to reference the parallel passage in 2 Chronicles 32. You say, well, what's 32 got to do with 20? The, The answer is the feature is the same. It's Hezekiah. So the story of Hezekiah is told in the chapter that we're going to read today, Isaiah 39. It's also told in 2 Kings 20, and it's also told in 2 Chronicles 32. And you want to say, well, make up your mind. Quit repeating yourself. To which I say, all good preaching repeats itself. Amen? Amen. Thanks be to God. So there you go. We're going to read from Chronicles 32 momentarily. By the way, in the Jewish collection of the Old Testament... Second Chronicles is the last book. In your English, or if you will, your Roman collection, Malachi is the last book. But in the Jewish Bible, Chronicles is the last book. So we're near the end of the Jewish Bible when we read Second Chronicles 32. But first, let's read the story of Hezekiah in Isaiah 39. At that time... And it doesn't matter how I pronounce that word, I'm going to get it wrong, right? So let's just call him M. That's the way I coach people who come across these hard names in the Old Testament. Just say the first letter. We all know who you're talking about, right? Don't get hung up on trying to pronounce words that nobody can pronounce. In English, we don't have names that have six syllables. 
That is just not the way we name our families. Well, this, this, let's just call him M. And he's the son of Baladon, which is the last part of his name, which really Merodach means the son of. So he is the son of Baladon, king of Babylon. This is the, the prince of Babylon. He's the son of the king. Sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he'd been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, and all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all of his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah, and he said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, Well, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They've seen all this in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of angel armies, the hosts, the host of God. Behold, the days are coming when everything you just showed those guys is going to be taken away. All that's in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Now 2 Chronicles 32 Verse 27. 2 Chronicles 32, verse 27. Hezekiah had very great riches and honor, and he made for himself treasuries for silver, for gold, for precious stones, for spices, for shields, for all kinds of costly vessels, storehouses also for the yield of grain, wine, oil, stalls for all kinds of cattle and sheepfolds. He likewise provided cities for himself, flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very great possessions. This same Hezekiah closed the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon and directed them down the west side of the city of David. And Hezekiah prospered in all his works. And so, in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, the sign of Hezekiah's healing, by the way. God left him, and the him here is Hezekiah. God left him to himself. Let me tell you, friends, that's the place you don't want to be. God left Hezekiah to Hezekiah in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. 
Well, this is not a, a biographical sketch of Hezekiah, but I, I have to make you aware again of some of the interplay here because it helps you to understand how this all applies to us. Because the names and places are totally different. Obviously, we live centuries later, millennia later. We, we don't live in the 8th century B.C. And though these players are not the people that we hang out with. We don't even know these people. And yet, our circumstances are virtually identical. You'll remember that Assyria is the great enemy to the north, and they have come to the northern border. We saw this last week in chapter 38 when Dr. Park was talking about they've come to Jerusalem and they besieged the city. And the great king of Assyria is an enemy that is unparalleled in his day. Babylon is going to be the country that overrun, overruns Assyria. But that's not going to happen for another uh, 150 years. So at the time of, of this, if you will, this encroachment of Assyria in chapter 38, Hezekiah was tested by God as to whether or not he would make an alliance with the Egyptian king. And in rebuke of that, God brought sickness upon Hezekiah. Then he brought uh, deliverance. He healed him. And this is the sign that has been talked about here in 2 Chronicles 32. These envoys from Babylon gave the pretense, I, I heard about this miracle. I heard about this miracle healing in your life, and I've come to check on you and to celebrate with you the power of your God. If that sounds like flattery, you have recognized it accurately. What do a bunch of pagans from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away have to do with the king of Judah and his God? Nothing. Except word is that he's rich. And unbelieving kings seemingly are always interested in somebody else's money. So, Hezekiah has been healed from his sickness in chapter 38, and now he's on the straight and narrow. And in the midst of that, he gets a visit from the envoys from some strange place. I want you to notice how he describes it in verse 39. He said, uh, verse, verse 3, Isaiah the prophet came to Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say and where, from where did they come to you? And Hezekiah said, they've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. Now, if this sounds eerily similar to Solomon's story, Hezekiah is not Solomon. Solomon is not Hezekiah. But this story is eerily similar. What do we know about Solomon? Solomon is a man that God made great, gave him great wealth and that he took that wealth and he multiplied that across the nation. He made the nation prosperous. And so he built great, great fortified cities and he built stables for himself and, and so forth. And people came from far countries. The queen of Sheba came to see Solomon. Now, what happens here to Hezekiah? I have an envoy from a far country. 
a far country. Nobody's ever heard of Babylon yet. They're just a pup on the world stage. Now, they're going to be a lion before it's over, but they're just a pup. And so this prince shows up with his envoy, and he sends letters, and no doubt he sends letters from the great king of Babylon, whoever he is. Baladon is named there in verse 1. And these, this guy sends me letters, and he hears about how great I am, and, and so I, I'm, I'm flattered by all of this. And so I welcome them. They've come from a far country. They make me feel good about myself and feel good about my achievements and so forth. Again, the chronicler, chapter 32, is very clear here. Verse 31, so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon who had been sent to inquire to him about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. In other words, God did not protect Hezekiah from Hezekiah. And God allowed this, if you will, this flattery to get through his protection. God allows this in order to reveal what's in Hezekiah's heart. There's something that all of us need to deal with. There's deep theological implication for this in our lives. Why do these things happen in our lives? Why do these hardships happen in our lives? Why do these tests and trials and difficulties come our way? Well, ultimately, the answer is because we live in a sinful world, right? We live in a broken world, and there are evil people, and there are people who want to flatter us or, or manipulate us or steal from us or take from us or, or denigrate us or bring shame upon us or, or lead us into the paths of destruction. All of that is absolutely true, but ultimately there is a hand, an invisible hand over all of those things, and who knows what doesn't normally get through to us? Think about it. Why is your life good? Why is your life safe? Why is your life protected? I've shared with you this morning, our own church has experienced the protection of God during the pandemic. Tell me, friend, why is that? And if you come up with some scientific answer for that, I will lovingly rebuke you. It's not because this church knows how to wear masks better than any other church. It's not because we don't have that terrible strain that they have over there. It's because there's been an invisible hand who has cared for us. And the reality is, he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to do that tomorrow. He could change his mind today. Because the Lord uses these circumstances in ways that are beyond our understanding. His ways are higher. His ways are mysterious. And what is God doing here that he's not doing somewhere else? I don't know. I'm not going to waste one minute worried about it. I recommend you not either. But I want you to know something, friend. 
that when your life is good, it is because God has protected you from a lot of bad that's everywhere, every day. And God protects and 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 protects. But in the wisdom of God, after God had brought healing to Hezekiah, because God gave him 15 more years, God now tests him. And he brings an envoy from a far country to see what's in the heart of Hezekiah. And you say, well, God already knows what's in the heart of Hezekiah. He doesn't have to do that. You're absolutely right. In other words, he didn't do it so that God could see. He did it so that we could see. You see, we're all living lives on display. Preacher has to live in a fishbowl. You don't know it, but you're in the same water. Turns out people are watching you. They're making judgments about God, the God you claim to follow based on your life. Because your water is crystal clear, just like mine. And you're not hiding anything from anybody. You're not hiding anything from God. He doesn't, he doesn't labor to know what any of us are doing or thinking or feeling about anything. So this test that Chronicles 32 tells us is going on in Hezekiah's life is for Hezekiah's benefit for those around him, for us who lived millennia later. God brings about this test. And what happens? Again, go back to Isaiah 39. The scripture says that Isaiah, rather Hezekiah, gets, if you will, he gets swindled by flattery. He gets swindled by letters from a foreign king. And, you know, all these people want to come in and they want to know about all of my success, all of my blessings. And so what does Hezekiah do? He opens the bank. He opens the arsenal. He tells his enemies, who he believes are his friends, what kind of weaponry he has, how many soldiers he has, how much money he has. The treasuries of Judah are filled with the blessings of God, and he exposes all of that to an enemy of God, to one who cannot regard God, who does not worship God, who makes no pretense about worshiping God. There is no value in Hezekiah doing that except one, and that is his own ego. Now I would ask you, are you above such flattery? Be careful before you answer that one. You say, well, I don't have a lot of this and a lot of that. Nobody's going to come and ask me about that. That's not the point, is it? The point is the circumstances are entirely different in our lives. None of us are Hezekiah, king of anything. 
But all of us, all of us stand to be tempted by flattery. How does a man commit adultery? I've never known of a certain of an instance in my life where it didn't involve some measure of flattery. How does a man steal from his employer? I can assure you, there's some element of grandiose viewpoint about himself. He decides he's important, he's more important, and that he's worth it. And on 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 we could go. I give two illustrations only to make the point that the circumstances today are entirely different. Your, your life is not Hezekiah's life, but your nature is exactly Hezekiah's nature. Our problem, friend, is that we are not good. We are subject to flattery. We are subject to temptation. We are subject to being tested and failing. And we have found ourselves in the residue of the wake of our lives, we can find story after story after story after story where the story of Hezekiah is our story. We don't have to expose them here today in front of God and country, but we know that we are this man subject to flattery. We know that pride is the soil from which flattery produces this crop. Pride. There is this universal problem in the heart of man, and that is that we are proud, and we like folks stroking our pride. Tell me how wonderful I am. Tell me how important I am. Tell me how valuable I am. Tell me how deserving I am. Tell me how good I am. Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me more. What happens to Hezekiah? He gets sucked in by the lies of flattery, just like we do. And the end result, of course, is that it brings great destruction. Notice what happens. Verse 5, Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that's in your house and your fathers are stored up this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. You say, why is that? Why is that? Because Hezekiah is again doing the very thing that he did in chapter 38, which is instead of making an alliance with God, trusting God for his importance, trusting God for his significance, he now opens up the storehouses of God to pagans, to unbelievers, to people who have no regard for God. He says, in effect, I like you at the expense of your affection for God or the expense of my affection for God. He compromises at the point of his own devotion to God. These are, the, these are the items of God. These are the treasures of God. These are the gifts of God to the people of God. And here is Hezekiah parading them out in front of unbelievers. The applications of that are enormous how we expose ourselves again and again and again, physically as well as figuratively, to the world. And we say, oh, we want the world to love us. We want the world to find us attractive. We want the world to agree with us. We want the world to stroke us. We want the world to affirm us. Friend, you don't want the world's strokes. You don't. They are damning. They are. You want God. That's what you want. 
Stop getting your affirmation from the world. Why do we need revival? Because we do dances with the world. Because we care about the affections of the world. That's not, that's a figurative term, dancing. I don't mean literal dancing. For those of you who struggle with that, that's not my issue. We, we make alliances with Babylon. But Babylon doesn't look like a king in Mesopotamia. Babylon looks like a thousand other things. Does it really matter how you destroy your family? You know, in the end, it really doesn't. Look, verse 7. Some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and there shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Hezekiah is going to have sons, and they're going to be deported. These are the princes of Judah. These are the sons of the king of Judah. They're going to be treasures. They're going to be trophies. They're going to be deported. They're going to be taken off. And they're going to be made eunuchs. Now, for those of you who are spiritually and physically challenged as to what a eunuch is, let's just say there's not a man in this room who wants to be made a eunuch and leave it at that. In fact, I will tell you that the Bible says that a eunuch in Israel is not permitted to enter the temple grounds because he is considered to be deformed. So, Hezekiah, because of your dance with the devil, because of your alliance with the world, your sons are going to be castrated. And they will be made to serve a foreign king. And they will never, ever have access to God. That's pretty steep. Quite a price to be paid. But you know, if you're the king, there's quite a responsibility to be met. Does it really matter how you bring destruction to your family? My situation is not that. Your situation is not that. Ultimately, we're not going to experience that kind of judgment. But pride brings judgment. And your pride and my pride is as ugly to God as Hezekiah's. The stakes are different. The circumstance is entirely different. But I assure you, God hates your pride as much as he hates Hezekiah's. Babylon is the new shiny thing. And Hezekiah is enamored with it. What's the new shiny thing in your life that's drawn you away from God? That's brought out your pride? That stroked your ego? That made you somehow forget God? Does it really matter how you bring destruction upon yourself and your family? No, it really doesn't matter. They all end up in the same place. There's a lot of heartache. There's a lot of misery. There's a lot of difficulty. But that's not the end of the story. 
Let's be clear. That is not the end of the story. Isaiah is 66 books, rather 66 chapters in this one book, and we're only halfway through, 39. What's going to happen in the next set of chapters? Because this is really, most Bible interpreters call this kind of the midpoint. Some of them, you draw a bold line, take a Sharpie or a marks a lot, and just draw a line between the end of chapter 39 and the beginning of 40, because the tone certainly changes in 40. Because the promise, the promise that God's making throughout the Old Testament is that God will raise up a people. He will take Abraham and he will make him a great nation. He doesn't even have a son, but he eventually through a miracle, through a sign, gives him Isaac. Then in Genesis 22, God tests Abraham. He asks him to take a knife and thrust it into the chest of his only son, you remember, he tests him, just like God tests to know what's in the heart here of Hezekiah. God tests Abraham, and Abraham passes the test. He tests Hezekiah. Hezekiah does not pass the test. But the point is the same. God is showing what's in the heart and showing that God honors trust, faith, devotion. He does not honor those who turn away from God and move to unfaithfulness toward God. In, in those cases, God demands something else. And we see that plainly in 2 Chronicles. So let me go back to 2 Chronicles, verse 24, chapter 32, verse 24. I'm going to read one more paragraph. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. He prayed to the Lord, and he answered, and he gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore, wrath came upon him in Jer Judah and Jerusalem. But, and that is the key word, but, that's not the end of the story. None of us have written the end of our stories. None of us are dead all of us are still alive, and we have the opportunity to, to repent, to turn away from our sin and turn away from our failure and return to God. And that's precisely what Hezekiah does. Notice here, verse 20, 26, but Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Why did God not bring judgment? Why did God extend his life? Why did God forgive? Because Hezekiah repents, and he leads the people to repent. This is the great news of Hezekiah. Not that he failed. Frankly, that is as common as dirty dishwater. We have all failed. We have failed, some of us already this morning, in catastrophic ways. We are failures. We are repeated failures. What is the answer to our repeated failures? It is the process that Hezekiah submitted himself to and the same process that we must submit ourselves to, and that is the process of repentance, of calling out to God. Study Hezekiah's life if you want to study and, and what this looks like. I, I would commend him to you. He is, he's a good man who failed. But yet God received his repentance. God recognized his repentance. The promise is tied to repentance again and again and again and again. The promise is not tied to the faithfulness of man. The promise is tied to the faithfulness of God in man. 
God is the one who works all things after the counsel of his will. God is the one who's going to make lemonade out of our lemons. God is the one who's going to rescue the perishing, care for the dying. God is going to do this. He's the one who's going to snatch them in pity from the grave. This is the work of God. It is the work of God in Hezekiah's life. It is the work of God in Abraham's life. It is the, God of, it is the work of God in David's life. It is the work of God in my life. It is the work of God in your life. Our only hope is repentance, humility. The answer to pride sin is the antidote known as humility. Humble ourselves before God and seek him. We must seek him. If we don't do this, then we find ourselves left with nothing else except destruction. Pride does bring destruction, but repentant, repentance brings mercy, forgiveness. I would urge you today, as you consider the life of Hezekiah, consider your own. How have you found the world attractive and compromised the ways of God because of it? Well, once you recognize that by God's grace, turn from it and seek forgiveness. And God will restore. Listen, if we don't have grace, we don't have anything. But we do have grace. God is such a good and kind God that he would forgive us and care for us after we have so often devalued and denigrated his name. Who are we to be so loved? I want to leave you with one more thing real quickly. problem the problem in Hezekiah's circumstance is he doesn't have an heir until he's given 15 more years God is going to bring judgment he repents and God gives him 15 more years and then he has a son named Manasseh and he ultimately has other sons in that 15 year period and Manasseh's this king and through Manasseh the line continues. Even, even through bad kings, God continues the line. Remember, the, the theme of the Bible is the protection of the seed. The seed of the woman must do battle with the seed of the serpent. And so Genesis is tied to Revelation. There is a dragon that must do battle with the seed of the woman. And that seed must be protected throughout the failures of people like you and me. Here's the good news. The good news is no matter how much of a turkey a Christian is, God has other Christians to protect the gospel. No matter how bad a preacher devalues God and denigrates God. God has other preachers. God has other evangelists. God has other missionaries. God has other faithful people, many of whom you will never know in your entire life. 
God is preserving the seed through a remnant of his own people. And God is protecting that seed through wars and rumors of wars and the failures of people and bad politicians and bad governments and bad decisions by by Christian leaders and bad decisions by Christian followers and on and on and on and on and on and on it goes. God is protecting this seed and ultimately through hill and dale, through nook and cranny, God is going to bring his seed ultimately to fruition. That's the story even in Isaiah, in microcosm. Isaiah prophesies for 40 years and he's prophesying against kings who are turkeys. And he's saying to them, don't do that, don't do that. But if you do that, repent and look to God and lead the people to God and so forth. But but ultimately, God is not even dependent upon that. How do we know that? (laughs) Because Hezekiah is one of the good ones. He still fails. He, he He still has a son who's the worst king in the history of Judah. And he's going to become king for 55 years. So where's the hope in that? Well, that's the rest of Isaiah. Forty-one. Forty-one years ago. My mother's mother, my grandmother, died. And in the family tree, my family, my grandfather was not a believer. He used to tell the preacher, I I go to church twice every Sunday. Once to take B, that's what he called my grandmother, and once to pick her up. Get off my back. But my grandmother went. And because of my grandmother's faith, my mother was a Christian. Because of my mother's faith, I'm a Christian. Forty-one years ago, my grandmother died. And my mother was planning her funeral. And she asked for the 40th chapter of Isaiah to be read at her funeral. I was a young preacher boy. I didn't know Isaiah from Jeremiah. You mean they're not the same? No. But you've heard these words from Isaiah 40, verse 28. This is the very next chapter. Have you not known, have you not heard the Lord? The Lord is the star. He's the everlasting God. He's the creator at the ends of the earth. He does not faint. Or blow it like we do. 
or grow weary. His understanding is inscrutable, unsearchable. He gives power to the Hezekiahs of the world. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. Susan and I have just spent the last week with six of our nine grandchildren. They never get tired, ever. But even they will faint and grow weary. And young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord... They shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. So you find yourself today weary and fainting. You find yourself overwhelmed by your sin or by your sorrow or by your failures as regards God. All you must do is run to God. Look to God. The only antidote for what's ailing us is God. The only solution is more God. More trust, more joy, more hope, more dependence upon him. Isaiah has a good, good, he has a message of good news. And it's coming. It's coming. And it's not coming in the lineage of a man named Hezekiah. It's going to even come in the lineage of a woman named Eve who ultimately, through her descendants, gives birth to a woman named Mary who gives birth to a son named Jesus. And the son of Hezekiah is not the solution but the son of Mary the son of God he is the solution so if you're looking to men to fix your problems if you're looking men to make you whole if you're looking for men to give you joy if you're looking for men to be your answer I want to tell you Isaiah rebukes you and says, run to the one who makes all of us strong. And he's the only one. Run to Jesus today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that pride is a terrible thing, but you are greater than pride. Flattery, Father, is a tool of the devil, and yet you are greater than all the tools of the devil. And I'm thankful, Father, that even though good men fail like Hezekiah, and many in this room, Lord, can have similar testimonies, all of us, Lord, need you. We're dependent upon you. We hope in you. We pray for your grace, and we pray that you would help us run to Jesus now. Run to Jesus. He is the servant who comes to put an end to all of our failures. Thank you, God for the promise of eternal life found in Christ. None of us want to be eternally weary. We want to be restored. We want to be renewed with strength we cannot understand.
Give us that today, Lord, by your grace and protect us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.